pray for us today. And um, this sermon has been on um, on the list. It's, uh, we prepare months in advance um, some of our sermon topics, and this this sermon topic has been on this day for about three months, and I knew, absolutely knew, up until about two weeks ago what this sermon was going to be. Like, I I had it mostly written in my head. I knew what I wanted to share with you today, and then about two weeks ago, I I really began to get into the text um, of today's sermon and went, this, I have to change everything, and it was super annoying. because this, this happens sometimes. Like, as we come to the Bible, we think we know what the Bible says. Like, we, 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 we have this conception of, oh, yes, this is what God wants to say in this particular story in the Bible. But I, it, your experience, maybe like mine, I don't know, have you, this ever happened to you where you come to a story that's really familiar to you and you read it and you go, uh, either I didn't remember that it was that way or, oh, my goodness, this is saying something new to me, something that, that I've never heard before. That was me two weeks ago. I, I, I went into our passage in Luke chapter 6, and, and I started reading it and went, I can't preach the sermon that I had planned to preach uh, because the Bible is this beautiful and mysterious and powerful and living thing, and it's going to say what it wants to say. Um, if we will get out of the way and listen to that. And we're actually going to talk more about the Bible, about what it is and what it does next Sunday. Uh, but today we want to finish up our, our, our series in Luke. Uh, we've been in Luke for uh, some time since Easter. Uh, we have been in Luke taking um, a look at who Jesus is and what Jesus does and seeing how we can become more like Jesus and in doing so become more fully alive and more fully human. And so today is the last of that series. And as I already mentioned, the, the story is in Luke chapter 6. Actually, it's two stories in Luke chapter 6. It's the first two stories of that chapter. So we're going to begin in verse 1, and uh, before, we, before we read, let me just um, set a little bit of background. Um, these two stories are stories 4 and 5 of a series that began in the previous chapter, all right? Uh, and, and there are five stories in Luke um, 5 and 6 where Jesus is um, confronted by the leading religious officials of his day uh, with questions about certain things. They want to know why Jesus does this, and they want to know why Jesus does that, and and they have all these questions for Jesus. And so this is at the end of this. Jesus keeps getting confronted uh, by by a group of religious people known as the Pharisees over a variety of topics. And in these two stories, in in verses 1 to 5 and in verses 6 to 11, the the thing that they're confronting Jesus over is the Sabbath— uh, the observance of the Jewish holy day of rest. And that's honestly, that's what I wanted to talk about today. It had been on the sheet to talk about Sabbath and how we keep the Sabbath and how we rest and how we, how we find joy in God in that. That had been the sermon today until I, I really got digging into these a couple of weeks ago and went, this is, the Spirit wants something different. So we'll see what happens um, as the Spirit has led me over the last couple of weeks to share this with you instead. Uh, And I could not shake um, what I was hearing, and so that's what we're doing today. Uh, So let's head into Luke chapter 6 and see what we find there. Uh, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain, rubbed them together in their hands, and ate them. 
But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you not read what David did when he is, and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he took and ate of the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and gave some to his companions. And then he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched, uh, watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. And even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. And he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it. And after looking at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Two stories back to back that revolve around the Sabbath that are incredibly and intrinsically connected um, and that have something that is worth paying attention to today. And there, there are just a, just a couple of things from these stories that I want to share with us today. And, and the first one, before we really dig into the stories, is this. Um, let's pay attention very quickly to the criticism of the Pharisees. Uh, this is not the point of the story, but, but before we get to the point, let's pay attention to this very quickly. Um, there is, there's a lot of criticism in these two stories and in the three stories that immediately precede this as well. These stories are just baked in with criticism. Um, and, and right away we notice this and um, maybe you come from a church tradition where um, you expect that when you hear the word Pharisee. Maybe, maybe in your mind the word Pharisee equals bad guy in scripture. Um, and, and if that's the case, I, I want to give you just a, a second to pause and reconsider that. The Pharisees, by and large, are not, like, they are, these are not the villains of the Bible, all right? The Pharisees are good and godly people. Uh, many of them become followers of Jesus. Jesus, of all of the religious groups that exist in Israel, and Marty has, uh, has talked about this, that there are, are just all of these different religious groups that exist in Israel in Jesus' day. And of all of those religious groups, Jesus probably identifies most closely with the Pharisees. They share a lot of the same teaching, a lot of the same goals, and a lot of the same understanding of Scripture. However, the Pharisees can be highly critical of Jesus because Jesus doesn't do things the way they would do things. Because Jesus and the Pharisees don't always see eye to eye or don't always do things the same way, it causes a lot of criticism. Uh, listen, be careful of criticism. Criticism is not a gift of the Spirit, nor is it a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Critiquing people in, in love when you have community and relationship, that's one thing. But just open criticism, uh, open criticism is like a fire. You feed it too much and people get burned. All right, so let's just be careful um, of criticism. 
And I think, you know, as we read these two stories, the, the Pharisees are here and, and they're critiquing Jesus. Why do you do that? Where they're looking for, for a way to bring an accusation. Let's see if he heals. If he does, we can bring an accusation. Um, and for the most part, the Pharisees um, in the scripture are, are just good, godly people. Uh, but here they are, they are ready to critique. Be careful of that in your own lives. So what is going on in these stories? Both stories happen on the Sabbath. They appear to happen on two consecutive Sabbaths, although that we're not 100% sure of. In the first story, Jesus and, and his disciples are walking across a grain field, uh, across instead of around, probably in order to take fewer steps on the Sabbath would be my guess. On the Sabbath day, you were only allotted a, a certain number of steps you could take before it became work and you had to stop moving on the Sabbath. And as they went, they're picking heads of grain. Specifically, the disciples are picking heads of grain and eating them. And, and, um, uh, and the Pharisees say, what are you doing? And Jesus says, haven't you heard? And he tells them the story. And then he says, I, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what's going on? Many people, um, when they come to these passages, these two passages in particular in Luke 6, um, where Jesus does these things on the Sabbath, he defends his uh, disciples, or he heals somebody on the Sabbath. He makes this statement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There are Christians and, and Christian teachers, and, and I've heard this in sermons, and I've read this in books, um, who look at this and they say, ah, see, Jesus is telling us we do not have to obey the Sabbath. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I don't think that's what's happening in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is a Torah-observant Jew. He has said that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to, to show us what it looks like when it's lived out. I don't think Jesus is telling us we don't need Sabbath, all right? And, and point of fact, I really think we do need Sabbath. We're created. In, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, the very first thing that human beings experience in our creation is Sabbath. Our day number one is God's day number seven, right? We start with rest. Not only do we experience it in Genesis 1, but, but in Exodus um, and, and in Deuteronomy, when the law is given in the Ten Commandments, we are told that, that it is God's command for us to rest. In fact, more words are allotted to the command about rest in the Ten Commandments than to all of the other commandments put together. I think that rest is important for us, and I think that God thinks it is too. I think that rest is vitally important for us. It reminds us that we are created in holiness and for holiness. It reminds us that we are not what we produce, that we are loved even when we do nothing. It reminds us that our rest is not what our work earns us, but rest is a gift from God. And Sabbath reminds us that we do not work in order to rest, which is very much an American way of thinking, but that we rest first and out of good rest comes good work. Sabbath is vitally important and I do not think that Jesus in these passages is telling us to get rid of it. I absolutely reject that thinking. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that there is still a Sabbath rest coming for the people of God, and the writer of Hebrews is looking forward to eternal life with God. But the Sabbath that we experience now foreshadows that. 
And how could we anticipate, how could we look forward to an eternal Sabbath rest if we have no idea what Sabbath is today? We need Sabbath. For all of those reasons and for more, we need Sabbath. We need rest. I do not think Jesus is telling us to abandon it. But I do think that Jesus is reframing it in a way that makes it more healthy, in a way that makes it more true to what God designed it to be. In our first story, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful to do? They're breaking Sabbath law. And there was a whole lot of laws about the Sabbath, what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Here's the really interesting part about this Sabbath law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, explicitly says that Jesus' disciples can do exactly what they're doing. You may, on the Sabbath, walk through your neighbor's field and pick grain and eat it. It's, it's in the Bible. Did the Pharisees not know that? Of course they knew that. But what had happened over time is that through very good intentions, religious people had said, uh, we don't even want to come close to breaking this law, so we're going to put safeguards around this Sabbath law. And we're going to create more rules and more rules and more rules so that we don't accidentally break Sabbath. And so when the Pharisees come and they say, it's not lawful, they're not talking about Deuteronomy 23. They're talking about all of the man-made constructs, all of the man-made religious observances that now surround Sabbath. And Jesus comes back at them and says, this is nuts. You want to know how nuts it is? Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about David. Have you heard what David did? And he starts telling a story out of 1 Samuel, where David has, is hungry and he's tired and he goes to a priest and he says, uh, me and my men need sustenance. What can you give us? And the priest says, all I have is the, is the bread of the altar, the bread of the presence. And David said, that'll do. And the priest said, okie dokie, and, and gives it to David, and David gives it to his men. And it's this wonderful story um, that happens in 1 Samuel, where David finds sustenance at the house of God because the priest is willing to give him the bread of the presence. Uh, now, Jesus is using a really well-established rabbinical teaching style here in his first story that's called Cal Vachorum. Cal Vachorum. Uh, which I'm sure I am pronouncing incorrectly, as I did not check with Marty. Um, but Calvachorum essentially translates to something like light and heavy, or how much more than. And Jesus teaches in this style kind of frequently in the Gospels, where he'll say something, and then he'll say, how much more? For example, you know how to give your own children good things. How much more? Will God give his children good things? All right? And this is what's happening here. Jesus is doing a how much more. And he's, he's comparing two sets of law, temple law and Sabbath law, both of which are important to the Jews, but Sabbath law is much more important. It's part of the, of the big Ten, right? It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's how we were created. Sabbath law is more important. And so the way that, that Calvachorum works is that you come along and you, you, you take a look at, um, at a law 
and you find an, an understanding for it in a in kind of a less weighty or light matter, and then you go, how much more then is this true in the heavy or more important matter? And so Jesus says, this is what happens with David at the temple. This is what happens with David and the bread of the presence. And if it's acceptable for David to do that, if it's okay for David to break that law, and all the Pharisees would have to go, yes, it's okay for David to break. We know that story. We, we understand, yes, David can do that. If it's okay for David to do that, how much more is it okay for the children of God to feed themselves so that they don't fall faint on the Sabbath? Because for Jesus, the Sabbath is not about keeping a set of prescribed religious rules, but the Sabbath is about doing that which will lead to life. That's what Sabbath is. It's rest that leads us to life. And so here's Jesus and the disciples walking through the field, and there's some stuff in the Greek that I really don't understand that's happening in this passage, but it seems to indicate that Jesus and his disciples are at the end of a long journey and that they're very weary. And so they're eating because otherwise they're going to drop dead in the middle of the field. It's not just that they were like, oh, we have nothing else to do. Crack open the M&Ms. That's what I do while I drive, just open bag of M&Ms, right? That's not what's happening here. They apparently are in desperate need of this food to stay alive. If we don't have this, we're going to start dropping like flies, people. And so Jesus says, if it's okay for David to do this thing with the temple bread, how much more so can the children of God pick the heads of grain that they might have life as they walk along on the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath is supposed to bring life. And if, and if it's not, we're doing it wrong. And let me be more broad than that. The things of God are supposed to bring life. And if they're not, we're doing it wrong. The Bible is supposed to bring life. Church is supposed to bring life. Serving one another is supposed to bring life. Being in community is supposed to bring life. Coming to the table is supposed to bring life. Working uh, in, in kingdom ways, working for justice, working for mercy, working for peace, these are all supposed to bring life. And, and if they're not, we're doing them wrong. If we are engaging in church, if we're engaging in religious activity, if we're going through religious motions and it's sucking life away from us instead of bringing life to us, we're doing it wrong. And the church has done it wrong a lot. We can do better. We can hear the words of Jesus here. How much more is it okay to take and eat and live to let the things of God bring life to you instead of worrying about maintaining all of the man-made religious observances. Can we just get back to allowing the things of God to bring us life? Which leads us right into our second passage. When we head in, into the next chapter, or into the next set of verses, we find Jesus teaching in the temple, which he does on a fairly regular basis. And what we discover here is that the second story ends up being an application of the first story. 
Jesus has given us the principle in story one, the things of God are supposed to bring life. Let's watch how it happens. Jesus is in the synagogue. The Pharisees are in the synagogue. Somebody who is in need of help is in the synagogue. The stage is set. Jesus sees and identifies the need and says to the man, come stand here, and the man does. So right off the bat, faith in action. Let's not forget to notice that. This man believes that Jesus has something for him and comes to Jesus on the Sabbath. And then Jesus turns and he starts talking to the Pharisees about that which brings life. And I love how Jesus moves the goalposts here just a little bit. Jesus does not ask what is better to do something or to do nothing. That's, I mean, that's honestly the Sabbath question, right? Should we do nothing or should we do something? Jesus changes the question. He says, what's more important, to heal or to cause harm? What's more important, to do good or to cause injury? What's more important, to save life, to bring life, or to destroy life? This is how Jesus is going to frame the question. Because for Jesus, to do nothing is harmful. Somehow we have got it in our heads that we can do nothing and be neutral. Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Jesus says, listen, either we're bringing life or we're causing harm. There's no middle ground. E either, we're, either we're bringing good into the world or we're bringing hurt into the world, even if it's by doing nothing. So this is how Jesus frames the question for, for the Pharisees. What is lawful? You tell me, to do good or to do evil? You, you, what's lawful, to bring life or to take life away? This is how it's framed. And so he says to the man, stretch forth your hand. And the man's hand is healed. And here, for the very first time, up until this point, the, the Pharisees have been critical, they've been watchful, but they haven't crossed a line, honestly. They've, they've, just been, they've just been good, observant Pharisees. But here's where they cross the line. Because in their hearts, they become furious with Jesus. In their hearts, they become furious. Let this be a word of warning to me and to us. When we observe other Christians and they're behaving in ways that, that we're not sure that Christians ought to behave, if our hearts become furious inside of us, we may have crossed a line there. We may have crossed a line. Have we learned the lesson that that which brings life is more important? Than just obeying a set of religious observances. This is what Jesus seems to be saying to us in these two passages. That Sabbath, that the things of God, they're supposed to bring life. They're supposed to bring us life, and they're supposed to bring the people that we encounter life as well. We're supposed to take in the things of God, like the disciples eating the heads of grain as they walk through the field. We're supposed to find life in the things of God. And we're supposed to give life as well, just like Jesus healing that man's hand on the Sabbath, saying, stretch forth your hand, and there it is, healed. The things of God are to bring life and to give life. Have we learned that lesson? 
Have we learned how much more important it is to do that which leads to life than to simply go through the motions of being religious people? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in being good religious people and in, and in doing all of the right religious things that I'm not sure that we are bringing life to anyone anymore. And, and, and we're actually doing harm. Now, there are places that we've learned the lesson. Um, just a, a couple of examples. Meg and I were talking this week about some places where, where this has happened, even here in this church where we've learned lessons. For, for a lot of the church's history, the church has said that, that women cannot do certain things in the church. For much of the church's history, we've said that, that this is the proper religious observance, that men can do certain things and women cannot do certain things. At UCC, uh, we have looked at that and we have said, that doesn't bring life. In fact, that, that is harming a huge chunk of our family. We have essentially turned women into second-class citizens, and that's not okay in the church. And so we've made decisions here, and we've said, uh, we know what the Bible says, we agree with what the Bible says, and some parts of the Bible are hard to understand. This is one of them. But what we do understand is that we have to bring life. And so we're going to do that by having both men and women serve at the same level in every aspect in our church. Because that brings life. Uh, I, I was reminded as I was talking to Meg about a, a, um, some friends of mine who have since passed away. They were an older couple when I met them. Their names were Pat and Loretta Stifler. Isn't that a great, great name, Pat and Loretta Stifler? Uh, they came to me uh, the first time I met them because they were looking for a church because they'd been kicked out of their own. And they were in their 70s. I don't know, it, it's, gotta, it's hard to get kicked out of church in your 70s. <laughs> Here's what had happened. Neither Pat nor Loretta had grown up Christian. They had both married other people and had families, but at some point, their marriages became untenable. They told me the stories of their marriage. It was not good, those relationships. And so eventually, both marriages ended in divorce, which is sad and, and tragic. They found each other, and with their family's blessings, they, they remarried, and they had created a good life and had been married for more than a decade by the time I met them. They started attending a church down the street. And eventually, after attending there for about six months, they decided that they wanted to become Christians and they wanted to be baptized. And so they went to the pastor and they said, this is our story. Can we become Christians? And the pastor said, yes, but you have to divorce first. I'm having a lot of trouble not using bad words. There are children in the room. <laughs> because somewhere along the line, this, this minister in the church that he was a part of, this group of Christians said that the, the religious rule about divorce is this. And we have to follow the rule, even if it means harming people. And so Pat and Loretta came to me down the street and they said, hey, this is our story and this is what happened. Can we get baptized and become Christians? And I said, yeah, like right now, let's do it. Let's, let's absolutely do that. 
And they said, but this is what happened at the other church. And I said, well, you know, they can go fly a kite. We're not them. Again, I'm trying not to use bad words. You have a home here. We love you, and we want you to find life in Jesus. Because for us, finding life in Christ was more important than, than, than keeping some set of religious rules. And in some places, we know that. In some places, we do that. In some places, we still struggle with that. I, I still struggle with that. There are places where, where I'm still trying to get it right. I, I, somewhere along the line as I grew up, I kind of, uh, somehow I got uh, in my head and in my heart that I have to be careful who I'm generous with because they might not spend that gift wisely and, and that I'm responsible for that in some way, shape, or form. Somehow I picked that up and I am, I am fighting like crazy to unlearn that. And, and I wrestle sometimes when, when somebody comes and they give me their story and say, this is what I need, can you help me? And, and I, in, my, in my soul, I know that I, I should because I am supposed to bring life. But in my head, sometimes I'm like, yeah, but you never know what they're going to do with it. And then my soul has to tell my head to shut up. So when Marcus showed up at my house a couple of weeks ago and knocked on my door, and said, this is who I am, and, and, the, and these are my grandkids, and showed me a picture and, and said, we're, we're hungry and, and we need help. Can you help? My head and my heart had this argument, and, and thankfully that day my heart won and said, this is about bringing life. And I was able to reach into my pocket and give Marcus what I had. That is not to toot my own horn, because most of the time I get it wrong. I'm really struggling with this. This is a place where I'm learning. What's that place for you? Maybe, it's, maybe it has something to do with, with how church operates. You grew up and you, and you think that church is supposed to be certain things or that worship is supposed to look certain ways. Maybe for you it's, it's something else. Maybe it's, about, um, maybe it's about how we do the work of justice or, or maybe it's Maybe it's you even have trouble with that word sometimes, that word justice kind of just, ah, oh, but yeah, but what about, the church can't just all be about justice. What about salvation? What about piety? And, and you have a hard time balancing those things. Maybe for you it's, it's a problem with standing with the marginalized. Maybe for you it's, it's, it's helping the homeless or the poor, because somewhere you have can heard religious people say, well, they probably did something to end up there. They have to do something to get out of there. Maybe for you it has something to do with, uh, with the LGBTQ community, and you're wrestling. How do we love our LGBTQ brothers and sisters because of the way that you have been raised or the things that you have been taught? What is it for you? What are, the, what are the rules that are standing in the way of you bringing life to people around you? What are the things that, that you have believed? Good religious things, or things that you think are good religious things. Sometimes it's hard to know the difference. What are the things that you've been taught what are the things that, that, that you have held on to? 
but honestly, they're not bringing life. They're doing more harm than good. What's that for you? What is the Spirit trying to say to you? How will you bring life into the world? Jesus um, takes this Sabbath and these two stories. He takes the idea of Sabbath and, and, and he frames it through the idea that Sabbath should bring life. And he's, of course, absolutely correct. All of the things of God should bring life. And, and, and he frames it that way because that's what he's about. He is about bringing life to people. He is about helping people find the life that God has designed for them, the life they are created for. One of the most, um, most amazing and powerful things I think that Jesus has ever said is in John 10.10. 10. Jesus says this. He says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But that I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or some translations say have it to the full. I love that. Jesus desires for people to have full lives. He desires that for you. He desires that for the people you'll come in contact with this week. What if we embraced that? What if we said, yes, I want to be about bringing life. I want to help people find life in Jesus. I want to help people find the life that God has in store for them. I want that to take center stage, not a bunch of religious rules. The world has had the world has had way too much of our arguing about religious rules. Haven't you? We don't need that anymore. Instead, let's be hungry for that which will bring life to us and to those around us. Let's pray together. Father, um, you've called us to be people who are fully alive and who will help others discover a full and abundant life. We can see it right on the pages of Scripture that this is what Jesus does, that, that he is fully alive and that he is helping us become fully alive. Father, how could we be anything different? And yet, so often we get trapped by those things that we think we're supposed to be doing or the way that we're supposed to be doing them. Father, would you, would you show us the error of that? Would you reveal to us those places where we still need to do work? Would you reveal to us the places that we're causing harm and we're destroying? And would you instead help us to bring life? Would you help us to bring life? In the name of Jesus, who brought us life, we pray. Amen. We want to continue in worship in a time of communion, which is, for me, the most life-giving of things. Um, this meal is, is beautiful and fulfilling. Uh, it is a meal that, that satisfies me in a way that very few other things do. It does not, does not satisfy my stomach, but it satisfies my soul. It satisfies my heart and my mind to gather with you around this table, which is not our table, it's not my table, it's not your table, to gather around Christ's table, to hear his invitation week after week 
to accept that invitation to come and to partake of these elements that represent his body and his blood given for us and to find together as a body here in this place and with believers around the world, life. So, um, so we want to do that this morning. As we do that, uh, we come and we confess as we do every week that we're still works in progress, that we haven't gotten it right, um, that we still need Jesus to bring us fully into life. So if you're willing and able to make that confession with me, would you stand with me? And we'll confess together. And then we'll come to the table, to this meal that brings us life. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what you have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. When you're